Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here with Michelle Badley, the author of Copycats and Contrarians, Why We Follow Others and When We Don't. Michelle is a research professor at the Institute for Choice at the University of South Australia. Michelle is widely regarded as one of the leading researchers in behavioral economics. She frequently collaborates with academics from across the social and natural sciences, as well as with a range of public policymakers. Really interested to talk with Michelle today about conformity and about rebellion. Why do we sometimes conform, sometimes go along with the group, and why sometimes do we do the opposite of what everyone else is doing? Why do teenagers especially push back against the way things are supposed to be done? And what should we do about it as parents? Really interested to dive into all of that and more. Michelle, thank you so much for making the time to come on the show today. We've got this book here, Copycats and Contrarians, Why We Follow Others and When We Don't. Why was this written? So, I'm an economist, and economics is about the way that people make decisions and choices. And you see a lot of copying behavior. Yeah. And so I was quite interested to explore why people follow one another and there are models in economics that explain it as in fact not a stupid thing to do so for example say i buy a new mobile phone let's say and you don't know anything about mobile phones then you might see other people buying a certain sort of mobile phone and think well they know something i don't know and so i'm going to follow people seem like they know what's going on uh, yeah, I don't know what's yeah, going on. Maybe stupid. I'll just kind of, yeah. That's not a stupid thing to do. That's actually probably quite a clever thing to do if you don't know very much. And so that's how some economists explain it. But I was also interested, or generally I'm interested in the fact that one discipline, one subject can't explain any, everything. Yeah. So I've always been quite interested in science as well as in the social sciences. And there's lots from all the different discipline groups that that is interesting. And so I thought it would be really cool to sort of bring in ideas from a lot of other subject areas. So I thought, well, let's see what the evolutionary biologists say. Let's see what the psychologists say. Let's see what political scientists say. So it's a very multidisciplinary book, which is probably a bit unusual, but that was one of the really enjoyable bits about the book was, was really looking across the different subject areas into all the reasons why people might copy one another. You're speaking my language there. I love looking at things from all kinds of different angles, trying to get, you know, all different perspectives on it and see what people have in common and what they don't. And of course, here on our podcast, we talk 
about teenagers. So this is a topic, you know, conformity and why we kind of sometimes go along with the group and peer pressure, peer influence, all of that is really important for us. And then also the flip side of the title is copycats and contrarian. So the uh, kind of other side of the book is like why we sometimes, you know, uh, rebel or, um, you know, want to stand out and not go along with what other people are doing, which also rears its head a lot with teenagers. I get a lot of parents coming and saying, hey, my kid is rebelling. And how do I get him to stop? So this book just grabbed my attention when I uh, came across it because uh, I think these are just such important topics. And I like that you kind of look at it from all these different lenses and you bring in some of your own research in here as well, which is, yeah. which is really fascinating. And that's that you did with Wolfram Schultz, I believe. That's right. That's right. So that was so Wolfram Schultz is a very well known neuroscientist yeah. and he does various experiments essentially looking at, at how the brain works, I guess essentially. Um and so I went along to an economics conference in, in the States a few years back and went along to this session that was all about bringing economics and neuroscience together. So, you know, economics is about how people decide and choose. But it's often just focused on what people do. It's not very good at explaining why people do the things they do because it's not about actually looking inside people's brains. But neuroeconomics tries to do that. Uh, you, know, a, you know, seeing what's going on in the brain and people making decisions. So I found this particular conference session very inspiring. And I thought, well, maybe that's the way to understand herding. Is herding quite a clever thing to do? Or is it an emotional thing to do? Is it peer pressure? Or is it social learning, like with the example of the smartphone? Um, or is it some combination of the two? And I thought, well, yeah, what I need to do is book up with some neuroscientists and see how they can help me in answering these questions. So Wolfram and I started collaborating, doing some experiments, including some brain imaging experiments. So using a technique called functional magnetic resonance imaging. So fMRI. The thing about it is it can look at how the brain is reacting when someone is, is choosing and deciding. And so we got people to do a financial task where they were picking shares, stocks and shares, financial things. Sure. <laughs> and they were observing others and making their choice after looking at someone else. So the idea is yeah. you look at someone else, are you going to do the same or not? Right. And what we were interested in is what was happening in the brain when that was when that choice was being made. So just to keep it really simple, um, in neuroscience there is this idea that there are certain ideas of areas of the brain that are more highly evolved and associated with, you know, mathematical reasoning and high level reasoning. Sure, right. And that would fit with the social learning buying smartphones example from before. But the other areas of the brain that are much more primitive and instinctive and emotional. Sure. And, and what we actually found is that it was a bit of an interaction of the two. So there's a bit of this sort of very rational social learning thing going on, but there is also something emotional and instinctive going on when people copy it. So I love what you talk about here. You talk about these researchers, Fishman and Neasy, and they're looking at like the lines that form outside of these restaurants on campus. And they notice something really, really interesting about the lengths of the lines that were forming outside. So 
even though one restaurant was already crowded, it would seem like, you know, logically, if you come up with these two restaurants and one's really crowded, you would go to the one that's not crowded because then you would have to not wait as much, right? <laughs> you would get faster service. Uh, so, so what's going on there? Why would they, why are they doing that? That's the, that's the classic example. I've illustrated it with a smartphone, but in the economic models, they often use the restaurant example. I see. So a very early paper on this was by a person called Banerjee. And he used the restaurant example because it's really, you know, it's, it's, we can all relate to that, can't we? If we see two restaurants next door to one another, um, we're not going to go into the empty oh, one. Oh, no, it must be you know, terrible. Yeah. <laughs> Why is no one else going that, there? <laughs> that's the social learning thing. So it's a bit like the smartphone. You buy the smartphone everyone else is buying because maybe they, maybe they know something you don't. Yeah, and right. so that, that museum fishman study is really quite clever because a lot of the trouble with experiments, especially in economics, is that you don't really know that it's real behavior. You, you don't know that people would do the same thing in real life. Whereas this particular experiment, they were studying real life. They were looking at these two restaurants and they were saying, well, these two restaurants were identical yeah. in, in every other way or pretty much the same. So why was it that people were just forming one queue behind one restaurant? And, and that was because it's a social learning thing. People were thinking, well, those people know this is a good place to eat. Right. And so we're going to eat here too. And so I think what's interesting is what you point out in this book is that it's like, a, you know, we make a decision as like a combination of external and internal information and we weigh that. And so at the beginning of the semester, these students, they have no internal information whatsoever about these two restaurants. So they go completely off of external information, which is, hey, everyone's lining up outside of this one. So it's got to be better. But by halfway through the semester, now they have a bunch of internal information because they've actually experienced both restaurants, maybe. So they know that actually they're like, kind of the same so by the end of the semester then the lines even out and there's no more like this effect that's right exist. and that, that was the other interesting thing about that study was that they did look at it over time yeah you know when when they were freshers and then later on when they had more of their own knowledge because some of these models do say you're more likely to follow others when you don't know yeah right you don't have your own information to rely on and so with that restaurant example exactly as you said I just think that's interesting because we looked a lot at the transition into college, specifically and in how influential peer norms are, social norms on drinking behavior and other risk-taking behaviors in adolescence during that transition phase. And it's really, it's highly impactful. And I think one of the reasons is because of exactly that, because when you're entering a new environment where you don't know what the norms are, then you start to really become tuned into those. You're in going to this kind of like learning mode. You know, just that's kind of how anything's going to work. If you're going to a new school, if you're joining a new friend group, if you're joining a new team, like anything that a teenager is doing like that is going to involve kind of like this period of learning the ropes and uh, adjustment and sort of like chameleoning themselves a little bit to sort of the expectations of that group. And and the, and the, the danger there is that if people, you know, all of us as teenagers is susceptible to what our peers are doing it's part of growing up is you know you, you're finding your crowd of friends and 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 you do do what they do because you want to feel part of a group you want to share an identity but the trouble particularly you know for freshers at university or whatever or college whatever they do or young people if they get into bad habits at that stage for example drinking too much drug taking whatever those habits can stick and they, they, those habits can have 
you know, negative consequences 10, 20, 30 years down the track. And so just, and I think a behavioral economist have found that if people are aware of what's influencing them, uh, they can do a bit more about it. You know, they, if true. you're aware, if you're aware that, you know, you, your peers are doing things that maybe aren't going to be very good for you in the long term, if you're aware of that, maybe you can control it a bit more. One topic that causes a lot of conflict uh, between parents and teenagers, tattoos and piercings. There's some interesting stuff in this book about that topic. Uh, I'm looking at yeah, page 32. I thought this was really interesting. You write that when and how is it economically rational to signal our identification with others through ostensibly costly and painful actions such as tattoos and piercings? These seem like maverick actions to outsiders, but make much more sense to others with whom we identify. And the costlier the actions, the better, because more costly signals are more credible. We would not incur such large costs, whether physical, psychological, or monetary, if we were not sincere. So, you know, as a parent, it's like, well, it doesn't come off, you know, you should really rethink that. But as a teenager, it's like, well, that's the point, yes, right? Yes. And just like you're saying, it means a lot more when it can't come off, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's like an investment in an identity, you know, uh, you're, sure. okay. you're saying, you know, I'm really, I'm really with you. I'm, I'm really, yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to join this. this. I'm in. Yeah. I'm a credible member. <laughs> All right. What do I got to do? I got to get three tattoos. <laughs> I can do that. It's a cultural and generational thing about it, because if you think a lot of women have their ears pierced and it's, you know, it's not controversial at all. And no. you know, it's actually not completely permanent, but, and it's not so visible, but, but um, it, it, it's cultural and generational. So in my generation, yeah. people didn't really get tattoos. Um, in, in other cultures, people do similar things. And so, so it, it is a bit of a, um, a value judgment in a sense about that. And that there have been, you know, studies of tattoos as a form of art as well. Um, you know, so there are tattoos and there are tattoos, aren't there? You know? But so, I mean, what wisdom could you offer based on all this research for a parent who's staring down the situation? You know, we got a 16-year-old who's who's planning to get a tattoo here and we're trying to talk them through this choice. How do we approach that? I think with any of these complex issues, talking is a really good first step, you know, to develop trust with, with the teenager, to explain to them, well, you are in this position now, but you need to try and imagine what you might think in 30 years' time, or 20 years' time, or 10 years' time, that, that these permanent decisions have have consequences in the future. So it's a bit like drinking too much or taking drugs or whatever. You know, if there are there, there are going to be future consequences. And by their nature, I guess, teenagers are having such an exciting life. So it's yeah, everything's right. going anyway. It's it's very hard for them to think of the future. But I think often illustrating with examples and anecdotes, because another theme in behavioral economics is that People don't respond very well to being told about things that are intangible and far in the future. They respond far better to things that are very tangible and immediate. 
Right. And so that, that can come in the form of anecdotes and stories or, or, you know, there was a person who had tattoos and they discovered, you know, in 10 years time, maybe they tattoo the name of their boyfriend, girlfriend, and in 10 years time, they meet someone else and, you know, there's the tattoo, um, and it costs them however much to, to, to remove the tattoo and, and it has implications for their future relationship. So just trying to make the implications of that choice just more immediate. And, and I know that's. But 10 really years, I mean, that's still, that's still not very immediate. What if you just said, you know, if you do it, I'll whack you. I'll whack you across the head. That's really immediate. Yes. And but the, the trouble with that is, is that you erode trust. So people can be punished explicitly in that way doesn't mean that they're not going to start hiding their actions. And so if they think they're going to be, get hit or, or whatever or, or, or punished without much attempt at, at reasoning with them, then they'll just do it in secret in the future or, or right. remove themselves or distance themselves. So, so it's about, I guess, common sense as well. But, but then, I mean, ultimately, you know, it depends on the age of the teenager as well. Because ultimately, you know, maybe it is their choice. It, you know, once right. they're beyond a certain age, you know. At the end of the day, yeah, yeah. You got to deal with the consequences of your own actions. We're big fans of that approach here. You know, maybe making some sort of a thing where, you know, if you want to make a decision like that, I'd like to feel like you've weighed all the options really carefully and like you've weighed the pros and cons really well before you make it. So if you could convince me somehow that you have at least gone and talked to five people that got tattoos when they were your age about, I don't know, something, convince me that you've really thought it through, maybe yeah. write me an essay yeah. or something, you know, just, but at the end of the day, it's, it's your choice, you know. With a much more benign example, I have a colleague and her children wanted to, to get a dog. And, you know, a dog is a big responsibility. Yeah. And so what her children did was they put together a PowerPoint presentation for their parents <laughs> and presented to their parents why it was a good idea for them to have a dog and all okay. the things they do to take responsibility for that dog. So actually that sort of thing, you know, present to me why it's important. And that that's a really good idea in terms of encouraging teens to think it through you know explain to me why it's important and in the process of thinking about explaining it they will think it through themselves and think okay you know maybe i do want to have a tattoo but do i have to have a tattoo now why not wait until i'm a little bit older when i can yeah, make more yeah. <laughs> yeah but i thought that and it and it worked these, these children persuaded their parents to get them a puppy wow. um, okay yeah yeah, so they presented their case. Right, and that's good right. practice in life as well. Okay, there's something that conflicts a little bit with that when you start talking about in-group, out-group and Taj research because you point out in here in Economic Models of Identity Tajfel's findings kind of undermine this because Tajfel and his colleagues showed that group identity can be formed without people having to do very much at all to signal the groups to which they identify. Whilst hipsters and other rebels want to be defined as different, they do not need to incur significant personal costs to persuade others that they belong. So, okay, so 
what do you mean by that? I thought we just said the tattoos are good because the tattoos, you know, prove to people that you really made put in the effort. So now you can join the group. But now you're saying, well, maybe actually um, that's not that's not the case. So in, in that part, it was presenting to two, I guess, conflicting hypotheses. So so the one about you get tattoos because you're investing in your in the social network. You know, sort of like that. That's the economic argument that yeah. getting the tattoo is a rational thing to do um, because you're, you're signalling to your group that you're really with them. You've invested in, in that identity in that group by taking this extreme action. So that's what the economists would say, but the social psychologists wouldn't agree. So, so it's coming back to this idea that there are certain parts of the brain that are associated with highly rational. Reason, mathematical reasoning, whatever, the, the very clever parts of the brain. But then there are also these more instinctive, more emotional parts. So Tashfell as a social psychologist is coming more from that approach that people do, you, you know, they form affiliations with their in-group and form antipathies and uh, resentments towards their out-groups. And the trouble is that people can form an identity with their in-group really quickly and easily, which makes it dangerous because people can quickly feel that uh, they identify maybe with some radical cause or whatever um, that, that is destructive or, or, or you join a gang or whatever. And that can happen really quickly and easily. We're here with Michelle Badley talking about conformity and rebellion, copycats and contrarians, and we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. To, oh, you should do this, you shouldn't do that, whatever, whatever. You say, well, you know, the reasons why you're wanting to do things in a certain way. You write, we need rebels because they have the capacity to change our world sometimes for the better. And votes around the EU referendum, votes around recent election or whatever, people are very easily swayed by, by fake news false information. Mm -hmm. And it's not their fault. There's not enough of it at school, uh, of people being yeah. you know, educated to understand what these politicians are saying. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get unlimited access to all the interviews I've conducted. It's completely affordable, and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.